We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I'm going to discuss what I tempted you with yesterday, the teaser that I gave you yesterday, that I got into it with a host of a British show called Atwood Unleashed, where I was surprised by his question about evolution. I'll share this and more with you on today's Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Well, yesterday yesterday in the introduction, I told you that I got into it this week when I was invited to be a guest on a show out of Great Britain. The show is called Atwood Unleashed. Sean Atwood is the host, but he has a guest host that actually took my particular segment of the show. Anyway, I was invited to go on this show. The reason they wanted me to come on the show was because of my not-a-daycare commentary. The producer reached out to me last week and said, would you like to go on this show? It's in the United Kingdom. We have, I think he said, 700,000 subscribers, and we'd like to talk to you about your views of education, your not-a-daycare commentary, your, your critique of the Snowflake Rebellion, cancel culture, and whatnot. And in fact, the producer asked me to give to submit uh, three or four questions that I would like them to ask me. Now, some producers do that. Sometimes they don't. It's all over the map. Sometimes they say, just come on the show. We'll talk to you about your most recent piece in the Washington Times, or we'd like to talk to you about your book, Not a Daycare, or we'd like to talk to you about Grow Up. Life isn't safe. It isn't good. They, and then they just, they'll just free flow with the interview, and I'm fine with that. But in this particular case, it seemed to be more structured. Again, I repeat, they invited me on the show to talk about education, not a daycare, cancel culture. And they actually asked me to submit three or four questions within that context, which I did. So they scheduled the show, and I was on it for at least a half hour, maybe more, this week. But it's interesting. The conversation immediately shifted away from not a daycare and went to the issue of my Christianity and Darwinism, evolution, and how I don't believe in it, and therefore I should be suspect. So I want to share that story with you today, and I'll talk to you about how I responded, what I think I did right, and where I think I missed an opportunity here or there along the way. So that's today's show, okay? I teased you with it yesterday, but I wanted to cover the Donald Trump story with regard to his announcement that he's taking a stand against transgenderism. Uh, we covered that yesterday, but I teased you and said we, w- we need to talk about this particular episode that I had on Atwood Unleashed out of the United Kingdom. Sean Atwood is the host of the show, but his co-host Steve, and I can't remember his last name right now, his co-host Steve is the one who actually interviewed me. We had a very robust exchange. It wasn't angry. He wasn't angry or rude, and I don't think I was either. I think we actually enjoyed each other's company, but it wasn't a mutual admiration society. It wasn't a love fest. He disagreed right out of the box with my Christianity, and he said so. 
and he sprung the trap of evolution, Darwinism, on me. It was a pejorative, it was a pejorative trap where he was trying to paint me into the corner as being anti-science. And somehow being a religious bigot who was trying to push my religion on everybody else. So I'm going to give you my response, or at least portions of it, after we take a break. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. In 1978, George and Kate Tedford set out to protect Oklahoma businesses better. Today, their son and our CEO, Mark Tedford, is excited to carry on his family's legacy. Professional liability, compliance, property, workers' comp, health and life. Tedford Insurance's dedicated team gives you access to the nation's largest insurance providers, negotiates the best rates, and protects their own legacy like no one else. Call 918-299-2345 or tedfordinsurance.com. The Patriot Auto Group, locally owned and operated. The Patriot family of dealerships takes great pride in supporting the communities we serve throughout the great state of Oklahoma. The Patriot Auto Group's charitable work has been recognized throughout Oklahoma. Whether it's visiting one of our local dealerships or simply shopping and buying online with our doorstep delivery, the Patriot Auto Group takes the stress out of buying a new or used vehicle. And every purchase comes with our exclusive peace of mind, Patriot Pledge. You get engines for life, plus one-year maintenance and 10 full years of roadside assistance, plus so much more. Sure, we can sell you a car, but supporting our community and lending a hand to our neighbors in need? Sold. The Patriot Auto Group. Proud Oklahomans in the communities we serve. Okay, welcome back to the rebellion. So, let me set the context. Again, to repeat, I was invited to go on this show. Now, I get invited to go on talk shows frequently. I'm not boasting about it, that's just my daily life. Some of them are radio talk shows that you've never heard of. They have a very small listenership audience. And others may have a substantial audience. Um, did Fox News Radio this last week? That obviously has a larger audience than my podcast, by far. <laughs> um, by the way, I'd put myself in the small uh, number category versus people like Sean Atwood's Unleashed uh, podcast. I mean, he has 700,000 subscribers. I assume that means on a routine basis. It takes me an entire year to accrue 700,000 listens. By the way, that's what we had last year. The entire 12-month period of 2022, we had 700,000 listens of the rebellion. That's great, but it's just a drop in the bucket to people that are out there really on the radar. If you want to change that, by the way, you need to post the rebellion out there in your social media world and encourage people to get out there and listen. So anyway, somehow I came across the radar of Sean Atwood of Atwood Unleashed over in the United Kingdom. I'm not sure where. I assume it's in London, but what do I know? It may not be. It's very interesting production. Essentially, he just has people on to talk. There's no high-quality uh, high production going on at all. Uh, you, you connect with them via Zoom, and you just uh, engage in the conversation. He hardly even set the show up. All of a sudden, I'm on. I'm sitting here waiting for it to shift from their previous guests to me, and all of a sudden I'm on, and he says, uh, uh, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? It really, it was that, uh, 
It was that truncated. But some of those podcasts work really well that way, I guess. Why bother with all the high production if people are listening in just to have, for an interesting conversation? So I'm invited on the show. As I told you, the context was uh, my commentary on cancel culture, education, not a daycare, grow up, those types of things. I submitted the three or four questions they asked me to submit, and I assumed that that was the direction we were going to go. So I think lesson number one in today's podcast is never assume. If you're going to engage in the market square of ideas, if you're going to engage in the public square, if you're going to take your worldview into the public debate, always be prepared to block and redirect. Always be on your toes. Never assume, because you know what they say about those who assume. Okay? Never assume. Always be prepared. So within two or three sentences into this, um, into this podcast, the direction shifts immediately. The context was this. My host, Steve, said, why don't you share a little bit uh, uh, about yourself so people know who you are. So I said, well, I've, I was president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. I'm currently president emeritus of o- OKWU. I serve as a writer for the Washington Times. I even threw in there that um, I'm currently a county commissioner in Osage County, Oklahoma. And I said, I guess the reason you probably have me on is because I have uh, been rather outspoken with regard to my critique of cancel culture, the Snowflake Rebellion. I've called people out for whining and complaining about an unpopular idea. I said, I think that's the antithesis of the academy. I said, you all are the birthplace. You're the cradle of the liberal arts academy, if you will. Oxford, a thousand years ago. If you want to make that the starting point of the liberal arts tradition, you all in the United Kingdom established the premise, the basis, the cornerstone for what it means to be liberal arts. It's, a, it's an art. It's an educational process to educate a free man, a free woman, a free society, a free culture, a free church, a free people. Liberty. It's an education in liberty. And I said, essentially, it's the recognition of the words of Jesus Christ himself. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We have to have the context of truth if we're going to be free. That's what I said. Well, immediately, he jumped on the issue that I brought up Jesus' name. And he started to suggest that I was pushing my religion. Now, did it sound like I was pushing my religion right there? If I would have quoted somebody else, if I would have quoted uh, Nietzsche, for example, rather than Jesus Christ, do you think he would have jumped my bones and said, hey, you're pushing your religion on me? No, he wouldn't have done that. But because I mentioned Jesus at all, and I quoted Jesus, who said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Arguably, one of the most famous quotes in human history, recorded human history, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Why is that controversial? Well, it's controversial because Jesus said it. And therefore, my host automatically started challenging me as being right-wing. He used that language, and he also said something akin to, well, we need to be careful about pushing our religion on other people. And then he said, you know, for example, I'm a secularist. I believe in the Enlightenment, and I believe that we have a common ancestor. So he jumps right into evolution. Now, what does evolution and a common ancestor and radical Darwinism have with anything I just said? Nothing other than, I've said I believe in the words of Jesus Christ, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he's countering that by saying he's a secularist, he believes in the Enlightenment, 
that we have a common ancestor and that Darwinism is true. And I suggested, well, you can, you can hold to that view all you want, but you recognize that it's a theory. And then he jumped. He said, no, no, it's not a theory. I said, it is too. The theory of evolution. Well, in scientific terms, he said, that's not what theory means. I said, well, what does it mean then? There's a difference between the law of gravity and the theory of gravity. I, I actually said that. The law of gravity isn't the theory of gravity. Gravity is a proven fact. It's not a theory. You have no proven fact that shows that one species evolved into another species. You have no fossil record to prove that point. It's still a theory. Now, you can argue that it's a good theory. That's fine, but it's a theory. It's not a proven fact. It's not a law. It's not the law of Darwinism. It's not the, theory. It's not the law of evolution. It's the theory of evolution, period, end of story. And he wanted to argue that and suggest that I didn't know my scientific terms. And I, I used an anecdote at the time. I said, okay, go over and walk off that cliff. You tell me that it's the theory of gravity. You go over and jump off the cliff. Jump off the side of the Grand Canyon. You jump off the precipice and do so under the, under the delusion that it's a theory of gravity rather than a law of gravity. You're not going to do it. I know that. You know that. It's not going to happen because you know that gravity is a law. It's not a theory any longer. It's a law. There's a difference between a scientific law and a theory. Now, I'm not arguing that all theories are going to be proven false. Not at all. He brought up the fact that, well, there used to be a lot of people that agreed with you, but they don't any longer with regard to your religious views. And I said, well, there used to be a lot of people that thought the earth was flat, too. It was the scientific consensus at that time. But they were proven wrong through the investigation, the pursuit of truth. A lot of people before Galileo didn't think that his explanations were valid. He challenged their theories, and their theories were proven wrong through further investigation and the presentation of facts. I said, by the way, when you said there is a consensus, that was a fallacy of ad populum. You know that. Just because a lot of people say it doesn't make it, make it true. It's a fallacy of ad populum. He conceded that point. We went further debating Darwinism. I said it's a proven fact. It's a fact. It's a premise of Darwinism, radical Darwinism. I said I don't have any problem with microevolution. I said the issue I have is macroevolution. You have no fossil records saying that a fish grew legs one day and walked up out of the swamp and became a horse. You have no fossil record of that or whatever else you want to claim the fish became. And there's no fossil record that says all of a sudden, an ape woke up one day and was human. It, you, you have no record of that transition. It's a theory. It's not a law. So as we were debating this, we got into the issue of survival of the fittest. I think I'm the one who brought it up first. I said survival of the fittest is one of the premises of radical Darwinism, that the fit survive and the unfit don't. He said that's not true. Darwin did not, did not, um, teach survival of the fittest. He did not say that. I said, that's, not, that's just not true. Survival of the fittest is one of the key premises of radical Darwinism. I mean, my land, origin of the species, <clears throat> Darwin's seminal work is subtitled, um, I don't have it in front of me right now, I'm, I may butcher it a little bit here. The subtitle of origin of the species is the survival of the favored races. Favored races, the, the, the races that are superior. 
And in that book, he talks about survival of the fittest, and Herbert Spencer, one of his contemporaries at the time, used the word survival of the fittest, and Darwin later affirmed the words survival of the fittest as they were used by Herbert Spencer. So it's clear that evolutionary biology, as proposed by Darwin and Herbert Spencer and others, embraced the idea that the fit survive and the unfit don't. The inferior, the inferior are trumped by the superior. Here's a quote out of survival, excuse me, out of um, Origin of the Species. This is a quote directly from Origin of the Species. But this survival of the fittest implies multiplication of the fittest. Out of the fittest thus multiplied, there will, as before, be an overthrowing of the moving of equilibrium wherever it presents the least opposing force to the new incident force. And by the continual destruction of the individuals that are the least capable of maintaining their equilibria, in the presence of this new incident force, there must eventually be arrived at an altered type of completely in equilibrium with the altered condition. A little awkward. Not sure Darwin was the uh, best writer, but you get his point here. I'll read the important part of that, uh, of that particular paragraph again. But, but this survival of the fittest implies multiplication of the fittest. And out of the fittest thus multiplied, there will, as before, be an overthrowing of the moving of equilibrium, wherever it presents the least opposing force to the new incident force. And listen to this. And by the continual destruction of the individuals that are the least capable of maintaining their equilibria in presence of this new incident force, there must eventually be arrived at an altered type, completely in equilibrium with the altered conditions. What's he saying right there? Survival of the fittest. The fit survive, the unfit don't. The continual destruction of the individuals that are the least capable of maintaining their equilibria. They disappear, they die, and the fit move on. And the cycle continues. That is the premise of Darwinism, and this guy is denying it to me. So we started pushing back and forth, and I said, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. And then I, I argued that this, this radical Darwinism has not only been applied to um, the, the discussion of the evolution of an amoeba into whatever it becomes, uh, it's not just biology. It's not just a discussion of how biological organisms mature. This, this philosophy, this worldview, has been applied to social Darwinism. And some pretty bad people have embraced it as their marching mantra to make the world a better place. One of the people that embraced this worldview was Hitler. And I said this to him, and he, he started laughing he said, as if that wasn't true. And I said, no, I'm not the only one who's saying this. There are multiple scholars out there who acknowledge that Hitler embraced radical Darwinism, social Darwinism, as his, as his foundation for his argument that the Aryan race was superior to other races, that Aryan people were the fit, and all of those who weren't Aryan were unfit, and that the Aryans 
the Germans, blonde-haired, blue-eyed folks, should be those that overthrow the equilibrium of the inferior. Out of the fittest, out of the Aryans thus multiplied, there will, as before, be an overthrowing and a moving of equilibrium. An overthrowing of what? Well, the Jews. An overthrowing of the gypsies. An overthrowing of the blacks. Because out of the Aryans, thus multiplied, there will be an overthrowing of everybody else who's disturbed the equilibrium. And this continual destruction of the individuals, of who? The Jews, that are the least capable of maintaining their equilibria in the presence of this new incident force. What's this new incident force? The Nazi regime. Aryans. Out of this destruction, this destruction of the individuals, the Jews, the gypsies, the blacks, the inferior, the less fit, the least capable of maintaining their equilibria. In the presence of this new incident force called World War II and the march of Hitler across Europe, there must eventually be arrived at an altered type of complete equilibrium with the new altered conditions. That's what took place. And this guy on this show denied it. So here's my point, I guess, in sharing this story with you. Always be ready to block and redirect. I did not know. I did not know that he was going to talk about Darwinism at all. I had no idea. Now, I wasn't under the assumption that he was a Christian. I didn't know that. But usually in today's culture, when I'm invited on a show at least, people recognize my Christianity as the premise to my worldview. And there isn't this much of an attack. An attack that suggests that you're anti-science, you're a backwoods buffoon, you don't even know what the definition of the word theory is. And everybody, the consensus is that Darwinism is not just an idea, but that it is a fact. That's what he was suggesting. And I had to be ready for that. And I think there were some things I said that were good. For example, pointing out that radical Darwinism led to social Darwinism, led to the Holocaust. I think that was good because even though he denied that and wanted to disagree with me. He can, de- he can deny it till the cows come home, but it is true, and I'm not the only one that has said it. Now, there were parts of the interview where I think I could have done a better job. For example, at one point he tried to point out that uh, uh, those who are religious, such as myself, um, are easily contradicted by other people who are religious, ignoring the fact that those who are secular, such as himself, are easily contradicted by others who are secular or by those that are religious. You know, it's not, it's not as if his worldview is excluded from contradiction. Um, I didn't point that out, probably should have. At one point, he brought up the resurrection. He said uh, various different religions disagree about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for example. He said, do you have to believe in the resurrection? to believe in moral law, the laws of Moses, for example. And I don't know that I answered that one very well. What I wish I would have said is that, sure, an Orthodox Jew and an Orthodox Christian, while disagreeing on the resurrection, will agree on the law. But where 
the Christian believes there's a solution to the violation of law, and that's found in the resurrection, the Orthodox Jew is basically caught on the dilemma. Caught in the dilemma of never being able to measure up to the law that he knows is revealed. So the difference between a Christian and a Jew is not a disagreement over the law. It's a disagreement over how the problem is solved and how to be clean and pure within the law. I, I could have pointed that out. I would have brought it back to the gospel message, but I missed that opportunity. So, and here's another thing I missed. Again, it was bantering back and forth, but I wish I would have brought up the, the simple analogies of, look, you believe that we're the product of happenstance and chance. You believe that Darwinism as a theory is, is indeed a fact. I don't. One of the reasons I don't is I look at the evidence that I see in my daily life. I look at other complex things, things such as a watch, and I assume, rightly so, that there was a watchmaker, that all of those pieces to the watch didn't just kind of happen. They didn't just come together because somebody was shaking a bag full of watch parts for several million years until those parts within the bag came together as a timepiece. I think that would be crazy to assume that that's how watches got here. Likewise, when I drive by in a development, of ho- a housing development, or an apartment complex, I don't assume that it just sprung up out of the dirt over time, that somehow the trees were rattling together for several million years, and as the trees rattled together, they became boards, and the boards then magically started forming together into a structure called a an apartment or a house. I don't assume that. And even if that happened, how did electricity get in the house? And how did plumbing get in the house? And how did a roof get on the house? And how did the hinges get on the doors? When I see a house or an apartment complex, I assume there was an architect and a contractor and a builder. I think reasonably so. I think it would be foolhardy to suggest that somehow that house just sprung up out of nowhere, out of nothing, because the trees were rattling together for several million years. And oh, by the way, even if you buy that particular argument, that that's where houses came from, trees rattling together, who made the trees? Where'd they come from in the first place? When I read a book, I assume that the letters on the page were actually written by an author. I don't think that the letters just kind of randomly came together into coherent sentences. And even if those letters did come together into a a coherent sentence as a result of somebody shaking letters up in a box for several million years, who made the letters that were shaken for the millennia? I, I, I mean, I could go on and on. When I walk into a museum and I see a painting, a Rembrandt, a Monet, a Van Gogh, I don't assume that that paint just got splattered on there randomly. In fact, I've seen paintings where the paint is just thrown on randomly, and they're very different than a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh. Some of the paintings you see that are just random splotches, you could conclude that it was happenstance and chance, that something happened to tip over a bucket of paint and it just splattered on a canvas and they put it up on the wall. 
But even then, you'd have to ask yourself, wouldn't you? Who made the paint? Who left the bucket? Who made the canvas? Who hung the thing on the wall? Don't you have to ask these questions when you see a painting hanging in the museum? Whether it is just a splattered bunch of paint, or whether it's a Rembrandt, Van Gogh, or a Monet. Don't we assume that there's an artist, some sort of intelligence behind the painting, the book, the housing development? Don't we assume these things, sir? And if we assume these things in our daily lives, then why all of a sudden do we assume that a cow just came together randomly, that nobody designed that cow, or that a pig likewise, or that a horse likewise, or that our world likewise was just a random shaking of something in a bag or a box over hundreds of millions of years, and it just kind of sprung up into this coherent, intelligently designed thing. And if you don't assume that of paintings and books, if you don't assume that of buildings, then why in the world would you assume it of the human being? I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.